Friends, welcome to another episode of Leadosophy. Great interview today with Dr. Markel Perkins. I served with Markel in the U.S. Coast Guard. He's a veteran of the Coast Guard. What you're going to hear this interview coming up, he talks about his Coast Guard experiences. He's currently a principal at a high school in Ohio. And I'll do an intro when the, when the show starts, but this is a really, we, we go into COVID, we talk about leadership in the Coast Guard and how those experiences translated into his time as a principal. All the views that Markel talks about are his personal views. They're not representative of his school district or his high school. They're just Markel's personal views on, on leadership and the things he does now and the lessons he's learned in the past from his time as a uh, city council member in his young 20s throughout his Coast Guard career and his time in the education system. So you're here with an open mind because that's the rule, not the exception. I hope you enjoy this show. Here we go. Are you ready to permanently fuse leadership and philosophy? Then a word of caution, you are about to enter the fully abstract yet wholly concrete realm of leadosophy. Our ideas are not always so clear and distinct. To validate this proposition, we welcome the host of Leadosophy, Tim Wood. All right, welcome to Leadosophy, everyone. This is Tim. I am here with a good friend of mine. I have not seen him in a really long time. I'm excited to have him, Dr. Markel Perkins. He is a Coast Guard veteran, 11-year Coast Guard veteran. He uh, got out of the Coast Guard as a first-class petty officer, and he currently serves as the principal of Cardinal High School in Middlefield, Ohio. Markel is, is a doctor of education, uh, specialty in curriculum instruction and educational leadership. Markel, welcome to the show. Mr. Woody, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Obviously, uh, some of uh, our, our listeners will have to excuse us. This is a bit of a reunion for us as I served under, like Mr. Williams said, uh, at Station Ashtabula for over three years. So it's great to be with you. Thank you for having me. It's, it's good to be here. It's good to be with you, talking to you. My only rule is you got to call me Tim for the rest of the, <laughs> the, rest of the time. <laughs> that's, that's difficult because in my mind, it's still chief. Yeah. And we know you retired as a, bo- as, as a warrant, as bosun. So, but okay, Tim, I got you. I'm a, I'm a quick learner. That's uh, that sounds much better. No, I'm just, I'm giving you a hard time. Okay. So Markel, obviously I'm excited to talk to you on multiple fronts. Number one, this is, this is a leadership show. Uh, I started this show really for selfish reasons. It was my way to, to deepen my understanding of leadership kind of in a public way. I'm a firm believer there's no universal truth in the world of leadership. It's always kind of like a trial and error. You're always learning on the fly. You probably know that as good as anyone being a principal. Right? Absolutely. Every day is a learning experience and no one day looks like the last. That's true. Yeah. So, you know, my first question for you, and I know we, Markel and I were doing some video earlier, but the, the, the video, we have some technical difficulties on the video. So we're doing a phone call, but we were talking about, I wanted to know what got you into the education world. So when you, when I served with you, I mean, we're talking 12, 13, 14 years ago, you were finishing up your master's and then you got your doctorate a couple of years later, I think. What, what, dro- what drove you to the world of education? What, you know, what propelled you into that direction? Well, you know, the, the story goes as, you know, my, my mom was a Sunday school teacher and I'm the son of a Sunday school teacher. So I, was able to sit and watch her firsthand develop lesson plans, 
uh, and then actually put those lesson plans uh, into action in the classroom. I was actually in her class and got to see the her building the lessons and then her actually practicing them uh, in the classroom. So I got to see how you build it all the way up to actually performing in the classroom. And she, she loved what she did. Um, and, and I love mom. Mom, I love you. Um, and so I, I learned firsthand how, how teachers put together lesson plans. Uh, that was the, my very first experience with education. But then you go on and uh, my teachers, uh, I had great teachers growing up, just awesome, caring, loving teachers, genuinely loving teachers. And I mean, we can just go from the very beginning and I'm going to, I'm going to name them, you know, Mrs. Curtis, Mrs. Emhoff, Mrs. McDermott, Mrs. Will, Mrs. Tarasky, Mrs. Myers, Mr. Strauss, Mrs. Aglinski, Mr. Tressel. Yes, he is the brother of Jim Tressel. Um, Mr. O'Malley, Mr. Dyke, Ms., Mrs. Peeble, Mr. Minnell, Mrs. Craigbaum, Mrs. Stefanik, Mr. Beatty, Mr. O'Malley, Mr. Wright, gym teacher, um, you know, Coach Johnston from our, our undefeated middle school team, Mr. Barth, my band director, love you, uh, Mr. Fidali at the high school. So all people that influenced and impacted me in a way that it, it made me want to do what they were doing. Uh, I enjoyed uh, being with them and my experience with them. They put a lot of faith and confidence in me. And sometimes I did not have that confidence if it wasn't for them. And so I wanted to pay that forward uh, and do it. And, and that's where, you know, I just, I wanted to be a teacher uh, to pay it forward and, and do what they did and do what they love because I love them and I love uh, the profession. So do you have any, do you see students like that? Do you have anybody that you see, that you think they're they're eating up that instruction and that mentorship that can you pick that out at the high school level people that may want to pursue a career in education do you have anyone like that we do yes we definitely have uh scholars that do go on uh, in education i think in our senior class i think we had approximately i would say and this isn't a hard and fast number but i, I think out of the 80 uh scholars we had i think we had probably seven or eight that went into the field of education. Uh, and they were actually in their senior year, they were working with a couple of them were working with our, our SPED instructors who do a great job. And so they, they got firsthand experience or on the job training just by watching and, and shadowing their instructors on, on the job and what it was going to be like, which I thought was just that. So yes, we did, definitely. That's awesome. We were talking earlier before we switched from, from video to audio. You were telling me about your grandfather who grew up in Mississippi and his experiences, you know, not just in education, but obviously in general, which could not have been easy. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I think that's really important to talk about and tease that out. It is very important. And I'm glad that you brought it up. Uh, it was on our video feed and, and the out and ends that we had. But my, my grandfather, again, love you, grandpa, 92 years old. Uh, raised five children, and then went on to raise approximately, I think it was five grandchildren, probably more than that, and, and help raise great-grands as well. So he's still with us, and I love him. And, uh, you know, just grew up in Mississippi uh, during a time that, uh, you know, uh, African-Americans, uh, you know, education was not a premium uh, as far as the social climate down there. So he went to school until he was in the eighth grade, and, and that was it. He wasn't allowed to go on any further and continue his education. And so immediately after that, he's working out in the fields, uh, driving tractors and, uh, you know, got to 18 years of age 
And I think he's even now, if you ask him, he, he's still very uh, disappointed and resents what happened, uh, you know, during those early years, you know, and, and one of the stories was that he had grown up with somebody. Uh, they turned 18, the young lady, obviously she went on and, and graduated high school. And then some of the, the, the men in town were telling my grandfather, Hey, you have to, uh, you know, call her ma'am. And, and he, you know, very, you know, in, in the, in his way, and in the Perkins way, no, I'm not. She, is she going to call me, sir? No, she's not. But that's how we do. That's the way we do things down here. And, and my grandfather rejected that. Uh, and eventually, uh, very shortly thereafter, left Mississippi. He went to Tennessee for I think about a year, uh, you know, and worked, uh, you know, in Tennessee, and then moved up to Medina, Ohio, where he met my grandmother. God rest her soul. Love you, Granny. Um, and that's where the Perkins family started. But he always, and, and this was a big deal, uh, education was very important to him, very important. And so he did instill that in us, the importance of it. And he would tell us those stories. And, and that's part of my motivation as well. You know, that's my grandfather. And I wanted him to be proud of, of what we were doing as his grandchildren uh, and, and continue on our legacy and our family. But, uh, you know, it, it's, it's just another thing, another uh, motivation uh, you know, that an influence that made me want to want to go into education and into leadership primarily. And I know that's what uh, our main discussion is about. Yeah, that's uh man, a phenomenal story. I, I can't imagine the stories that your grandfather has, man. I just can't imagine. A lot. There's, yeah. there's really a lot of them, but that's one that all of us knew. We all know that story. Sure. It's almost, uh, you know, I think about, you know, before my grandfather passed away, I, I got a bunch of audio recordings of him and I talking about World War II. Uh, it would be definitely, I mean, you could probably write, a, your grandfather sounds like you could probably write a book on his experiences and his life experiences, almost like a memoir, you know? Absolutely. You know, we, when we had our, my uh, celebration, my graduation celebration for my doctorate, uh, you know, he, he stood up and did speak uh, and talked about Jim Crow and actually living through that and listening to that. And, and it's real, you know, it, it was real there and to see the pain on his face, but then also the joy and the love, uh, you know, of, of his grandchildren, his children, his great grandchildren. Uh, it's just amazing. You know, the, the overcoming of all of those, those obstacles that were thrown in front of him because he was black. Sure. And, you know, especially right now as you know, everything that we've gone through here in 2020, it, it just makes you reflect on, on, you know, others in the past and what they went through. And they went through a lot more than what we are going through. But there, there are some things here, you know, in our time right now that are, are hot, hot button issues and things that, that are just not right. And one thing that he always taught us was to stand up for what was right. Um, at the end of the day, always stand up for what was right. Yeah, what better messenger too, right, for that message? Absolutely. Well, somebody that did just, that's my grandpa, yeah. and actually threw it and experienced it. Sure. Well, wow, sounds like a really awesome man. And uh, I, I appreciate kind of us going off this this track a little bit to, to talk about his story and his influence on you, because this is that that does have a leadership nexus. You've already said it. It, it, it's, it has shaped you as a leader, his his mentorship, his guidance, his willingness to stand up for what he believes in and for him to teach that to you. Right. It's a it's a great point. And I wanted to be like my grandfather. Uh, you know, he worked at Ford for 41 years, uh, the one in Cleveland, the Ford factory there. 
I think it was plant number one, if I'm not mistaken. He could probably tell you better. But uh, 41 years, did not miss a day of work. Got up every day at 5 o'clock, and I would get up with him um, every morning. And he would fix himself a cup of coffee, and he'd fix me a little cup of coffee. And I would sit up with him until he left. And then when he got ready to leave and head out, uh, I went back to bed. Uh, so I, I learned a lot from my grandfather, and I am eternally grateful for having the opportunity to spend as much time as I have with him. You know, he's still around, and we were just so blessed and so lucky to have him. And, and for him to see his great his great grandkids uh, is just amazing. And I know he just he loved it. So, the story of your grandfather, and obviously your your mother and her raising you. And you and I have talked about that. Your 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 mom raised you pretty much. Your mom was a single mom. Is that right, Markel? That's correct. Mom was a single mom, lived with my grandparents, um, did not move me around. I stayed in one house. I stayed in one school district for my K through 12 experience. And I, again, grateful that she did that. She very well could have tried and gone out and moved us around, my sister and I. She did not do that. She put us before that. Obviously, she still worked um, and went to school, you know, part-time. And so, but we were in the same school district. We were in a stable and great community, Berea, Ohio. And again, just, you know, just awesome that, that she, you know, she did. She sacrificed sure. for us uh, keeping us there. And then you had my grandmother and my grandfather who were there and, and you know, teaching us how to be uh, productive human beings. <laughs> and, and be respectful and be uh, civically involved. They, they very much were involved in the community and, and everybody knew our family and knew our grandparents. So you've pretty much, I don't want to foreshadow the, the answer to the next question, but I think you have kind of unwittingly answered it. So I, I wanted to know you have always, as long as I've known you, you've been in, intrinsically driven, whether it's academics technical competence, whether driving a boat or any of your Coast Guard duties. So I wanted to know what is the source of your kind of your self-motivation? What drives you? And is it teachable? And I, I think you can, I think you've already answered all of that, but is there anything you want to add to some of that? Because I really want to know as far as self-motivation goes, maybe for anyone younger listening, is that something that's teachable? You know, and I think you've already alluded to role models can teach that, right? We have role models in our lives and they can teach being self-motivated, find something that inspires you, be passionate, get up every day and, and go to work, be productive. So I, do you want right. to expand on that a little bit? Yes. I mean, I, I saw it. I saw it every day in my house. Uh, I saw it. I saw it modeled. I saw it modeled in school with my educators who put, again, put the scholars ahead of themselves and sacrifice, uh, you know, and, and so I learned that by watching and by soaking all of that in. I've always wanted to do my very best at whatever I do. So whenever I do something, I always tell everybody, I'm going 100%. You know, I'm going to do the very best I can, no regrets, okay? So when you go to do something, you put your best foot forward, and then at the end of the day, whatever happens and the, the cards are going to fall where they may, but at the end of the day, you can look yourself in the mirror and there are no should-haves, could-haves, and would-haves there. You did the very best you could. And you can hold your head up high with that. But I've always wanted to do my very best, no matter what the job was or what the task was. If, I, if I'm taking on a responsibility, a task, whatever project, I'm going at it full bore. And uh, like I said, I mean, I, 
I, I watched it. I grew up knowing, you know, seeing my grandfather, like you said, my grandmother, you know, a uh, bus driver for Berea City Schools for 30 years. So my first, when I look back and, and stuff and pictures kind of flash before your eyes on your past, those are things I remember. I remember seeing the school bus. We lived right across the street from the bus garage. Uh, so, you know, my grandmother, 30, 30 years driving a bus. So again, everybody knew who she was. Um, my uncle Donnie, who was getting ready to retire is a custodian, uh, in Berea city school district and does a great job as the head custodian for the high school. And again, so, uh, always been around the education field, always been around, uh, those individuals who are hard workers and me personally, like I said, I I'm competitive. You know, this. Tim, I do. I, do. I know it well. Yeah. And I know you know that. Um, so the intrinsic part of this, the drive for doing things the right way, the first time, uh, being prepared, you know, uh, you know, failing to prepare is preparing to fail. And one of the things that I took from our time together and you, you said it, I don't know if you remember this, but I use it when I coach football was, you know, what, what type of practice makes perfect? And they say, well, practice makes perfect. No, practice doesn't make perfect. Perfect practice makes perfect. Yes. And so, again, those things that have been ingrained in me, I'm a sponge. <laughs> so I, I remember those things and I use them. Uh, and I, I take those things in, the things that I don't need, I don't, I discard. But the things that I can latch onto, I do. And it can be taught. I think most importantly, I think the teaching comes from being around it though, and observing it and modeling it. Those are the important so that so that our youth can actually see them in action. And even, and not just our youth. Sometimes it's even, you know, people that are our age that maybe didn't have those experiences and they'll, they'll pick up on it. People pick up on things and the small things. And I'm sure we're going to get into that as far as the small things about me, how I carry myself and how I talk. Yeah. So but, I was, uh, gonna, I was going to ask you, you know, you're talking about giving, you know, hundred percent every day, you know, you, you have, I, I, I think of you and I'm like, you have two speeds, zero and full throttle. <laughs> and you're usually at full throttle when you're in the middle of your job and doing your thing. Do you, in your day-to-day work as a, as a principal, do you always think, Hey, someone's watching me. My students are watching me. I have to be that role model. I have to give my all every day. Do you think about things like that or the th- things you think about? Absolutely. Absolutely. Tim, uh, very important. Integrity is, you know, doing things when people are not watching. This is not, and I always say this to people, as a school leader, as a leader, as a coach, as a father, when I say something, I mean it. Okay, that's what you're getting is me. Authentic. You're not getting a facade. Right. You're not getting an act. You're getting the real Markel Perkins. That's who you're getting. This is none of this stuff because some people believe that. They believe there's this wall that goes up and and when I'm at home, I'm different from the person that I am when I'm at work. Yeah, in some regards I am because home is home and work is work. But when I speak, the way I carry myself, the way I act, it's the same person. You talk to people that have known me, and I have friends that have known me since kindergarten, since preschool, and they will tell you that I'm that same person. They saw it when I was younger. They knew um, you know, that, I was, that it was going to be some sort of leadership position, whether it was in the military or a coach or in some other capacity, they had already known that. And so, yes, it is important for us 
uh, in any role to model those uh, behaviors. And, and I take those on very seriously. One of the things that was brought up um, recently for people that are just getting to know me, you know, somebody had said, well, your persona on Facebook or, you know, you're a cheerleader. And I said, well, wait a minute. I am not a cheerleader. Okay. Our kids today are, are, are supposed to grow up right away. Right. Right out of the womb. Boom. You need to grow up. Right. And don't really get to be kids. And one of the things my mom always said to me was, enjoy being a kid. <laughs> enjoy it. Because once it's over, it's over. It's gone. And yeah. then you got bills and you got all kinds of responsibilities. So enjoy your time. And so I do that. And I encourage. And we spotlight kids and, and, and scholars in our school. Uh, and, and for just doing great things, that's not cheerleading. I always say I'm the quarterback, man. Even if I'm not the guy throwing the ball, and I'm speaking obviously in the sense of what I do now, because I'm not Tim Woody at quarterback uh, <laughs> football field. But in school, you know, I'm the quarterback. I'm going to give people the ball. Leaders are good followers too. You know, I learned that. I learned that from Lamb's training. Leaders can be good followers. Followership. And so again, I don't speak just to hear myself talk. I don't always have to be the tip of the spear. If there's somebody that is stronger at whatever we need to get accomplished, that goal to get accomplished, I am okay with them taking the lead and I can be a good follower and rally everybody else behind that person to go. And I still do that. So, so that's, that's the important thing. It's, it's safe to say that you, you believe in the concept of empowerment, empowering others. Absolutely. It's very, very, very important. Uh, micromanaging uh, is just not the way to go. Group think. Uh, is dangerous. Uh, I've said that to people in the school district I work in now, that group think is very dangerous. You need to be able to have those conversations and share the air um, and be respectful uh, when you're sharing the air, even if you disagree. But it is very important uh, to empower people, to empower teachers, to empower our scholars, to empower parents who I think sometimes get left out in this field they need to be empowered too because they're parents. I always, when I talk to them, I always say, your mom, your dad, you know? And, and so even in a discipline, if it's a discipline issue, uh, there's a conversation about what, what, uh, you know, what was violated as far as in the student code of conduct and what I plan on doing and, and where we go, where do we go? And if parents have a better idea in some, in, in a lot of cases, I'm going to say in most cases, if they go, I will handle this. And it's something that, I can let them handle, I let them handle it. Um, if it's something obviously that is, that is uh, on the higher end where I have to act and there are those things, there's that line, then I do. But, uh, but most of the time I am empowering parents. I empower teachers to run their classes. I empower them that if there's an issue with scholars, first and foremost, that they handle it. And if they need me as the Calvary or backup, then I come in. Um, you know, and, and scholars uh, in general, restorative justice is a primary example of something that we're doing and we're using uh, our student court, uh, team court. And so our first two levels of discipline are minor and major, and then it goes severe and then severe major. So those first two minor and major, we have a court and, you know, scholars can forego punitive consequences and have a case heard you know, in front of their peers and then their peers make the decision. So again, these are all ways that we empower people. We want everyone buying in 
to what we're doing. Nothing great is ever accomplished without people working together and without empowering people. It just, it just can't happen. And, and I know that as a 43 year old, all of the things that I've done uh, going forward and, you know, and, and the things that I've earned and the accolades, whatever, you know what, those aren't just me. Those are the people that helped me get there. Those are my family, my friends, and even those instructors and, and that support system. Very important. So the, the restore, I'm curious to know the restorative justice program with the students are involved in that, right? They're part of that process at the minor level. They absolutely are. Absolutely. Yeah. What did you, is that something, did you learn that from someone else? Was that already in place when you took over as principal in 2019 or is that something you brought along with you? You'd seen that somewhere else. This was something that I was taught back at Cleveland. Uh, it was Nexus Academy of Cleveland. And we actually had a two-day training on restorative justice and what it was and what it meant. Um, and there were scenarios that occurred. And the main thing, obviously, is, and it's just what it says, it's to restore everybody involved. So those who are aggrieved by the actions of somebody or a group, and then also the group that did it, they are restored. So once the, the people involved... Uh, you know, admit to the wrongdoing, they sit down and they have a discussion about it. And they sit and listen to all of those individuals who were impacted by the decision or actions that they uh, took part in. After that part of it, uh, there's another phase of it, which, okay, how are we going to make everybody whole? How do we make everyone whole? And the group collective comes up with, and if parents are involved, scholars are involved, instructors are involved and then you have a like a, a mediator or a moderator and everyone comes up with a way to restore uh, everybody to you know to make them whole and I really took to this idea and I even went as far as talking to the guy and this was geez this was five or six years ago um, and thank you to Brittany Sanford who was my principal at the time I was one of her her instructors I was one of her success coaches uh, but I even talked to the presenter and said, hey, man, if you ever need anybody to go out and train on this, you can train me and I'll go out and I'll do it because I was I was definitely sold. There's books out there on restorative justice and, and I, I live by it. Is, this a na- is it a national thing or state state level? It is. It's a national thing. Okay. It, it, it's a it's a concept. It's an approach, you know, to justice. Um, and, and it just it, it just makes everyone whole. I, I think it's a great process when you can use it. And sure. there's other you know, situations when people may not, that are inflexible and may not want to sit down and do it. And that's fine too. Well, then you go and you roll into punitive consequences at that point. So it's, right? it's safe to say it's a tool in the, in the toolkit to use. Absolutely. Yes, it is a, a great tool. <laughs> no, I've, I've never heard of it before. And I'm, I'm just, now I'm curious of how popular it is across the country. I wonder how many people are using this. Definitely Google it. Yeah. And it, it's in there, and I'm sure it's it, it goes, all, all, obviously, the scope is bigger because it'll go into community, it'll go into authorities and, and bigger things than, you know, that we may not see in the education field. Sure. Um, but it's just, it, I, I swear by it, I do. No, that's awesome, and, and thanks for entertaining that that explanation because I've, we, we, we talked last night for a little while, and, and you brought that up briefly, and I was thinking about that this morning for some reason it just popped in my head this morning. I was thinking about it and I was 
curious to to kind of learn a little bit more about it and I did so that right. was that that's good. So Definitely good stuff. What is so your your doctorate in education with a in kind of like an emphasis in educational leadership? Correct. Can you unpack for someone like layman like me what is educational leadership? What does that mean maybe in theory and practice both? Can you talk about that a little bit? Absolutely. So we all growing up, you and I were from a different era. Uh, our principal, our principals were disciplinarians. They normally handled discipline and that was it. Very top down authoritative. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. That was their day. That's all they did. And so now that has changed. And I would say, and I can't give an exact time that it started, but I would say right around, uh, you know, the turn of, uh, to the year 2000, uh, and probably some would probably say before that, but now it's more instructional leader driving educational growth from your scholars and your instructors. And it is part of a partnership with, uh, those scholars and those instructors to ensure that instruction is, is effective, that it works. Theoretically, we know the different types of leaders, right? So educational leadership and unpacking. You have authoritative, you talked about that. You have a democratic leader, you have a transformational leader. And I can remember when I first got into, you know, studying leadership, the big thing was transformational leadership. You want to transform. And I can remember that. And, and I kind of shook my head and went, well, I, I looked at one and one in particular that's been going for, I think over the last 20 years is servant leadership. Right serving service right and so that's what that's my life my life is service and so immediately that one gravi- that, that gravitated towards me because that's who I was and uh, but there's a bunch of other ones right there's transactional there's charismatic and you know I know that there's a question there may be a question down the road but there's all different types of leadership and guess what you're not just one you're not just in one box you're not typecast yeah, okay, that's, a, that's a great point. I, I, I don't like, I get uncomfortable when people try to, to say, you need to be X, Y, or Z type of leader. I think it's very situational and contextual too, right? It is. It is. There are times when you can be democratic, when you can sit down and have meetings after meetings after meetings. And as, a mili- as an ex-military <laughs> man, uh, or as one that, that got out, um, it's difficult sometimes. And there are other times when it's like, no, we can't wait. We got to roll. We got to make a decision. We got to roll. Uh, and there are times that, you know, those executive decisions come up. So the educational leadership is, is right now as the instructional leader to drive growth for our scholars and in our teachers, because when we do evaluations for our instructors, it is primarily based off of growth. It is not a punitive measure to be used. It is to identify uh, things that you can reinforce, those strengths that can be reinforced for for instructors. And then also after reinforcing, to look and refine things that that instructors may need help with and give them that support and let them see, well, maybe we ought to try this. What did you think of this? And things like that. So that's where educational leadership comes from theoretically. Practically, it's again, it's just like we said, it's empowering people. And uh, using that that leadership and that role to empower people. 
and empower our scholars, empower our staff, empower our parents. And, uh, you know, that those are all part of uh, that term that you hear, education leadership. Have you, in your, in your time in the education world, is it, is it the exception or the rule? And I'm, I'm just looking for a general, like your gut kind of reaction that the parents are usually involved in, in the education system from their actual students performance to a more broader, what's going on with curriculum, stuff like that. What's been your general you know, your general experience with that, with parent involvement in the education field? It really depends on the parent. Uh, let me just start off and preface it by saying that. It really depends on the parent. And what you'll see is those that are very active have been active in their scholars' education from the time that they went into the school building until they graduate. That's what you'll see. Those that don't, there's usually a reason why. And what I have experienced and what I've seen, obviously, from inner city schools to a rural school, it normally depends on their experience with school as them being the scholar. Was it a positive or negative experience? And then it also translates into them as a parent, where their negatives you know, involved there, where their positives there as well. And if there's been negative, obviously, because human nature, right? You can you can say 99 things positive about something to someone, and if you the one thing that you said that is constructive, they will remember. And so, people that have had bad experiences, they bring that and they take it with them, and sometimes they project it onto their kids. I'm not going to say all the time, but sometimes they do. They project that onto their kids, and I've experienced that, and I've seen it. And there's a conversation that goes on, okay? And I, I've said this, and, and you're going to laugh. I'm the king of confrontation, okay? Because I'm a parent, too. Right. So nobody can say, well, you're not a parent. You don't understand. I do. I get it. And so the conversation is, well, you know, I understand that you may have had these bad experiences in the past, but this isn't the past. This is now. Um, if there were issues with me in decisions I made, you know, those are decisions that I made as, as the principal or as the head of the school. But I always work hard to bring parents in, and I'm always working to uh, make their experience positive. I don't want parents or scholars going out of the school with a negative experience. Right. I don't. But can we do that for everybody? No, not necessarily, especially if there's prejudgment going on already or if there's stuff that needs to be unpacked or that's there, and you've got to overcome that barrier. And so, yeah, it's, it, that is a very difficult thing. I, I would say, like I said, that those that are involved, you'll notice that they've been involved the whole time. Those that haven't, there's a reason why. That's a, that's a really great point. When you talked about making sometimes, you, you know, maybe a decision you made that was unpopular, from a leadership perspective, are you, when you make decisions that affect maybe your entire high school and obviously made the families and stuff. Are you a fan of giving the why behind your decisions? I do that. I, I, I think it's important that we are transparent and we do give the why. I am a fan of giving the why. There are instances and circumstances where I can't always do that. Uh, and we talk about privacy. Yes. So if something happens with a scholar, 
and is a disciplinary action that's taken. And parents who are not the scholar's parent are coming down and saying, well, what did you do? I cannot disclose that. Sure. I can tell them that it's been handled. And, and that's usually it. That's all I can say. I can't say any more than that. But normally the transparent part, I will give them the why. And if, and, and if I can't, I will tell them that. I cannot disclose what has occurred because of pri- privacy. And that it's is a, the why. Private matter. That's the why. Yeah. Right. And so there's, there's your why. And some people, and, and here it is, Tim. I mean, let's, let's be honest here. I mean, I was 22 years old when I was on city council. I took some hits for some things that I proposed on city council when I was there at 22 years of age with men that were retiring, uh, you know, and, and obviously 30, 40, 50 years older than I was. Sure. And took a lot of heat for some things and ideas that were different. Uh, one of which I can remember is the cell phone issue, you know, and, and driving while using a cell phone and the dangers. And we, we had somebody come in where, you know, that, that actually was a national speaker on the issue uh, to, to city council during work sessions and things. It took a major hit on that. People were calling my house wow. and, and threatening me and, and threatening, you know, my roommate at the time is my best friend, uh, Brian Snyder. Uh, and you don't have to add that in there, but, um, that's not easy. When you see these things where, where it gets out of the realm of professionalism and it starts getting into personal, that's a big issue. Sure. And I can remember one phone call and the guy made a statement, you know, well, we're going to vote you out. I'm like, well, that's fine. Uh, I'm running again. <laughs> you have the right to vote for the person that runs against me. But don't call my house and don't threaten my roommate and don't threaten me or my family because that's when, that's it. Uh, that goes from professional to personal. Right. Um, so, yes. I, I am a big proponent of the why, uh, for sure. When I, when obviously, when you can disclose that information. So I forgot that you were on city council at that young man age. I remember us talking about that. What? Yeah. You you told me your grandfather was very big about being engaged in the civic process, right? Obviously, for obvious reasons, he would be big on that for his children, grandchildren. So, right. did you start? learning things about leadership, good and bad at that stage being on city council at 22. Yeah. Well, this is, this is, this is the great thing about it. So I had a class at state and local government at Baldwin Wallace university as Baldwin Wallace college at the time in Berea. Mm -hmm. And the instructor for the course was Mr. Jeff King. God rest his soul. He's gone now was the president on Berea city council. And so his, uh, class was amazing, Tim. He took a lot of the issues that were going on in my town at the time, and we discussed them, we researched them, we debated them, and, and we move on. And that's where I got really interested in local politics, was in that class. And one particular issue that came up was a trash, trash transfer station that they wanted in, in town. And they wanted to put it on the north end of, of Berea, which is primarily African-American and also, you know, Caucasian-American live there. But mainly socioeconomically, uh, not the affluent down toward, you know, uh, the downtown area of Berea and some of the other areas. And I ran on that. Um, I thought it was wrong. I didn't think that we were getting the representation that we needed from our ward councilwoman at the time. And I said, you know what? Uh, I'm running. And during a council meeting, 
I stood up <laughs> at age 21 and I told her right in front of when the cameras were on, somebody could probably get the footage. <laughs> and I told her, I am running for your seat. And, and immediately had a big eruption. People were clapping. And, and of course, you know, the incumbent laughed at it and thought it was a joke. And she lost because I outworked her. And that, so that was, was a bold, important. that was a bold move, man. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Absolutely. Well, you're 20, you're 21 years old. Yeah. Bulletproof. <laughs> you know, Bulletproof. Yeah. Yeah. Right. But it was all, but here's the thing about it, Tim. The big thing was that, and Mr. King was there, he was at the meeting and again, you know, he had this smile on his face and it wasn't a smile of, of yeah, right. Or you have, you don't have a prayer. It was, I'm proud of him. He's going to win. He's going to win. That's probably what he was thinking. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it was thanks to, it was thanks largely in part to him. My grandfather, when he had heard about it and I made a decision, I talked to my family Grandpa at first didn't want me to do it. I think grandpa wanted me to focus on obviously, you know, graduating college and then moving out. Now that first reaction changed because he did come out and start campaigning for me. But at first he's, he's being, you know, protectionist, protect, probably protecting yeah, protect you. my grandchild right. from politics right. because he knew what politics was. Sure. And so, but my grandmother from the very beginning was on board and she was just so happy and just, my grandmother was, was just, she was amazing uh, through the process. I uh, had John Fazio, my campaign manager, and we did it together. But, you know, a couple of friends I had uh, at the time, you know, uh, Brian Snyder, Michelle Chekovich. Um, and we did it. We were all high, we were all college students. Right. Going against the machine. Uh, and, and we won. And we did it. That's, that's awesome, man. How long, how long were you on the city? How, how long did you serve for? I was on uh, city council for, I think it was about three and a half years. Uh, I resigned my position to join the Coast Guard. Wow. Um, it was time for me to go. I think it was in February, but that was it. I, I decided, you know what, you know, I was at a, a, a crossroads professionally. Uh, you know, my son was just being born. And so I was a long-term substitute teacher at the time that wasn't paying the bills. It wasn't doing enough for me. Sure. So I, I was like, you know what? Uh, this is something I've always wanted to do. I'm not getting any younger. It's sure. time to go. And so I, I went and enlisted in the Coast Guard. At that point. So let me, let me just kind of close. Let me put a bow on the, the city council experience. So okay. you're having gone through an 11 year Coast Guard career going through the ranks in the school systems, being a principal now as it, from a leadership standpoint, do you, what do you look on that experience differently now? Are there some things maybe you missed at 22 from a leadership perspective that you can see now at 43? Does that make sense? Am that I asking that a, right? No, that's a great, that's a great question, Tim. Um, it's, it's a great question. Absolutely. I think at 22 and, and me being 43 now, if I could go back to 22 year old Markel. What advice thing, would you give 22 year old Markel? Yeah. Right. The first thing that I would, I would say is you can disagree without being disagreeable. And right. I think I actually heard that from um, one of the councilmen that was there and I wasn't listening to it because I was 22 years old. <laughs> um, but also to work with people to do my, do your best to work with people, 
understand that um, that there's going to be some, you know, you're taking, if you're going to take on some of the uh, things that people want you to take on as far as uh, issues and stuff, that you're pragmatic about it, that you're practical about it, that you understand that there's a process, learn the process, relearn the process, right. and just work as hard as you did when you campaigned. I think we did work, we worked really hard during the campaign. And then even after, we worked really hard afterwards too. I think at the time I was 22 years old. I, I was a hot-headed 22-year-old. And 43-year-old Markel would say, slow down a little bit take on those things and present those things that you can win. Okay. And then the harder things can come along as we continue down this road, but don't take everything on because what ended up happening was a lot of people would call me with problems and it wasn't just in my ward. It was all over town and they, we want something done about it. Well, then of course I would run out, take on this, this issue and the people that called me or were complaining and doing stuff, they weren't anywhere to be found. So it was just me taking on the arrows that were coming a lot right. of times. So by the time I was done, I was tired. Um, you know, even at that age, it was like, this is not a sprint. This, this is a marathon. Um, you know, it's, it's that old saying, right? If I had known uh, then what I know now. Sure. <laughs> yeah, no, tell me about it. So... Fast forward, you joined the Coast Guard. After 11 years in the United States Coast Guard, the U.S. military, what what did you take away from a leadership perspective and from maybe a followership perspective? What what translates translated well into your current field, world of work? And maybe there might be even some things that, that don't translate. And I know we talked about sometimes you're like, okay, we got to make a decision. Let's do this. Kind of that military starts creeping back in but maybe that's not always the, the best way to do it. So can you talk about what kind of what the Coast Guard did for you from a leadership and a followership perspective? A absolutely. From the leadership perspective, the Coast Guard, and you will see in my, my emails that I send out to staff, students, parents, it's still, it's still their honor, respect, devotion to do. Um, when you've done it for 11 years of your adult life, and I know we talked about this, that's part of you. Those are, those are the way. core values of the Coast Guard for those listeners. Honor, they, respect, they devotion, are, and divinity. Right. And so they will always be ingrained in me. I, like, I, like I've stated before, I, I took those things that I learned in the Coast Guard and the things that I, I needed to continue to grow as a person and the things I didn't want, I discard. So the, the primary examples are this, that – uh, and, and as a 43 year old, I can say that sometimes it's lonely being a leader. It's just lonely it is. because, you know, people will second guess it. But again, as long as you are doing the best that you can, you are prepared. Um, and we talked about preparedness, doing your homework, right. And holding yourself accountable. You know, you can look yourself in the mirror. Okay. Leadership is not in a vacuum. It will never be in a vacuum. And again, I always go back to that team concept because in the Coast Guard, you really are a team. You really, you really are a team. And the responsibilities that you have thrust upon you uh, as an E4, as an E3 even sometimes. A very junior, a very junior enlisted person, a lot of responsibility, right. right? Very, very important. And the training that goes into it, the, 
just the training that goes into those, those jobs and those important jobs. That's what made me who I am as a leader today. And I learned a lot. I, I learned a lot. I, there were some things that, that happened that, um, you know, it, it just did not work out after 11 years. And you get to that point, it's like either you keep going or you're done. Right. And, and we got to that point because I, I still had a love to be uh, an educator. But the important thing is that, uh, you know, it's a, it's a team concept. I think people say that and they don't really, they don't really understand what teamwork is about. Uh, unless you're working a buoy deck and you mess up or you step in the wrong spot and you could seriously hurt or injure somebody or kill somebody. Life's the greatest um, teacher. Just by your, yeah. Just by your action. Right. Uh, or going out on a, on a SAR case and not knowing where you're going or not understanding or not doing all the homework of your AOR, which I mean, obviously when you sit on a board, you have to, because if you don't get certified, right. Uh, if you're not, if you don't have those, that information and you don't do your homework, it is very important to be prepared, uh, to be organized and to be re- to be ready, right? Simple Paratus, always ready, always ever ready. ready. And, and so that's, those are things again, where what we do right now, and I'm looking at it from my perspective in my current field, we meet a lot. <laughs> we meet a lot. And at some point, and I'm usually that person, it is okay. We've exhausted this. We've exhausted the discussion. Um, we've had it. We've, we've rethought it. We've done everything. We don't, we're not group thinking here. Let's move. Right. And so there's always that and following, Hey, like I said, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm a good follower too. Uh, good leaders are great followers. That's a great, they understand it. That's a great point. They they understand what it's like to to get in line and go. They may we may not always agree on, on things, and and I think for the most part we did when I was when I was stationed uh, with you. Um, but you also gave us uh, the opportunity to speak up. Um, there was a time and place for it, and there was a way you do it. And so I'm still like that, and I think some people get frustrated with that because there is a time and a place. Being unprofessional in a professional setting is not the time nor the place you right. always praise in public and they have constructive criticism in private. Sure. You do not go after people personally when it's something professional. And so again, there's all those things that come up, um, uh, in, in what I've learned and the military bearing part, Tim, I'll tell you, you know, I've worked for, I'm trying to think how many superintendents I've worked for. And I think five, and there was one in particular that called me militant. She called, and we know the connotation right. with that word. Sure. Okay, that's a negative connotation. She was using that to spin a negative thought on who I was because of my military service. How did and you of handle? I rejected. That. Yeah. How did you handle that? And so the the response was, "What you said was offensive, ma'am. I do not appreciate it. It is not true. How am I militant? Tell me how I'm militant." Well, people say that you're not approachable. Well, guess what? In a lot of cases, that's the people's responsibility. That's on them, okay? Because a lot of times, you know, when you're in the military, you have military bearing, right? okay? And some people, if you are a strong leader, Tim, there are people that no matter whatever their beliefs are, because they see you as a strong person, they feel threatened, Therefore, you're not approachable. I'm threatened by him. They really can't articulate why. 
Well, it's because of the way he carries himself. It's the way he talks. It's that he's very straightforward and very direct. He's very concise. He's not holding any punches. He's not swearing at me. He's not yelling at me. But something makes me uncomfortable, and I don't know what it is. So, so what you're saying is you're saying some people can take that being very direct and, and I, knowing you like, you know, you're like, let's not like beat around the bush here. Let's just get right to the point. Right. right. Some people can take that as an authoritative style or yeah, I, I see what you mean. I, I do see what you mean by that. Right on. Yeah. That's uh, that's a, you know, it's one of those things where, you know, from my days, you know, I haven't really, I've obviously been in a leadership position in quite some time, but thinking back to, to my Coast Guard time and being, you know, commanding officer roles and things like that, there's this, there's this weird balance that you feel sometimes that you have to walk where every single person you lead is different. They're all filtering what you say through a different reality, right? Right. So you, you have to be cognizant of that when you're talking to a room full of 30, 40, 50 people. But then on the other side, it's really exhaustive if you try, have to try to send a separate message to all 30 or 40 different people differently. Does that make sense? It does. And it, I think if I were having or I was the, the instructor of a leadership course, what I would say is you need to be cognizant of that, that you are the sender of the message. And how is it being received? Right. Because sometimes my face is not always saying exactly how I feel. Sure. And I know that. And I tell people I have to walk, I probably should walk around with a mirror sometimes. Um, but at the same time, you still have to be you at the end of the day. You have to be who you are as a person. You have to be authentic, man. Because if you're not authentic, people are going to sniff it out. Right. Do you, are you a, so my philosophy background, are you a, a fan of self-reflection? Do you self-reflect a lot? Is it something you try to do, incorporate that into your leadership, you know, kind of whatever, daily, weekly? And I don't mean maybe that something is. deliberately, but just, I mean, do you spend time in reflection and like, does that make sense? Right. That is very important. Self-reflection, humility. Right. Um, yes. I think I do it, and I tell again. I tell people that I am harder on myself than anybody. Else. So yes, I, I self reflect yeah. a lot, uh, sometimes over self reflect. But I, it's important. I think uh, I think I think if you care, if you're someone who's yeah. who truly cares, you'll have a tendency to to over reflect. Maybe maybe not to a fault, but you'll definitely second guess. You're, I, I think maybe your effect on people from a relationship standpoint, you know what I mean? Right. Well, it's a, it's also a check. Yeah. It's a check on who you are as a person. It's a check so that you, listen, if you believe you know everything about everything, uh, you know, in a certain position, job, whatever, then it's time to get out. That's a good point. Um, That's a good point. You're not growing anymore. We talked about that. We did. You know, and, and, and you know how I love movies and I love comedies and, and I quoted Tommy boy and what his dad said, you know, about the expansion of his factory, you know, either you're growing or you're dying. There ain't no third direction. It's a dynamic and process, so, man. Never static. Yeah. 
and and there it is again. So self reflection is part of that. It, it is also a check on who you are right. uh, as a person because that twenty two year old again. Go back to Markel at twenty two years of age. Self reflection wasn't it wasn't uh, it wasn't it wasn't as prevalent as it is now. wasn't wasn't quite part of the operating system yet. Yeah, it was there, but it wasn't the way it is now. Right. No, it, I hear you. Now, and we do as as leaders, as really genuine, I would say, good, effective leaders. Guess what? We tear ourselves to pieces sometimes over decisions we make. Once we make a decision, we're going. Right. Right. We're going, and then we reassess if we can. If we can reassess and we can make adjustments. Football, right? I'm a football coach as well. You make those adjustments. Right. You know, you re you reevaluate, and, and you look at you know in our mission, right? When we were doing missions, we would reevaluate what our numbers were. You know, the red, green, yellow. Right. Is this safe for everybody? And again, those are things that I took. And so, yes, absolutely. Self-reflection is huge. I think I probably got that from mom. Um, yeah. Mom kept me from getting my head in the clouds too, too far. She kept you and grounded. So, she kept you grounded. <laughs> she she yeah. did. She definitely kept me grounded for sure. Yeah. I think, uh, you know, leadership's a grind, man. I say it all the time. Leadership is a grind. And a lot of time it is trial and error, man. It's uh, you make little mistakes you make course corrections you know i think that's a big part of the day in day out grind of leadership you know you're never always going to hit a home run with your decision sometimes you're going to swing and whiff and uh that's just a part of it man and that's part of you got to sometimes have big shoulders you know it's just it's not being afraid to fail yeah that's it uh it's and obviously the higher up you get you you, you have to be careful sure with that though I mean, that there's still, there are still, there are still guardrails there. Right. The failures um, can be know, much more that, consequential the, the higher you get yeah, up to. Yeah. Yeah. So, so again, it, it's there. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, once you've made a decision, if you've done your homework, if you worked your butt off, again, I've always, I've lived by that, you know, that, you know, I'm going to look at, make sure that my, my charts are up to date and my track lines are correct and, and redo those and make sure that they're good to go. Um, that is uh, not, those are Coast Guard or Navy sailor terms, nautical terms. Um, but they are also in life. Am I, are we going the right way? Are we doing the right thing here? Right. Um, you know, and, and, you know, looking to make sure that, that our decisions are up to date. Uh, there's a lot going on right now. <laughs> right. And there's a lot of people that are armchair quarterbacking. I stood up in front of the National Honor Society two weeks ago. And there were two things that I said. I said, one, it's, it's lonely being a leader sometimes. So get used to that. It's okay. It is all right. It's good to try to build that support group, and you should. But just know that it's going to be lonely because people will guess and second guess everything that you do. You can't be hung up on it. The second thing is sometimes you got to be uncooperative. <laughs> and I said, this is, your, this is the only time you're going to hear the principal say this about being uncooperative. But it's not a bad thing to be that way. The reason that our country has made it this far is because we were uncooperative in a lot of things we did that made us get past and shed some of the things that we were doing. Right. When we were occupied by Britain, you know, we were uncooperative with the taxation and some of the other things that were going on, right? right. Civil, civil rights movement, same thing, uncooperative, right? And fast forward to 2020, things that happened, people see it. 
and people are out voicing their their opinions and their concerns. And so it's important to those two facts, I think, uh, going forward. When you when you give a speech like at the national for the National Honor Society, the parents are there, right? They are. You know this when you are crafting your message, because I know you prepare to give a message like that to the students. That message is in part for for the for the parents as well, because they know their their students are getting that message, right? Is that safe to say? That's that's correct. Yeah. It's very important, um, and I do prepare that way. But what I also what I would say is let's let's just look at we'll go back to the case in point, the example of the National Honor Society. What I try to do is to make it a conversation and a discussion. Right. So the discussion when I was up speaking to the parents and to the scholars. I was speaking directly to the scholars um, and saying, hey, I'm gonna, I'm gonna have a conversation with you all here right now. And I turned and I would look at them and, and have this conversation. They were positive, uh, the, the, the speech was, was positive. Uh, but yes, I, I'm fully aware, uh, and these are things that you learn in politics as well when you're, you know, the, know the crowd you're speaking to. That's a big one. You know, know, know the room you're in, <laughs> it's like public speaking 101, right? Yeah, know yeah. the room you're in and, you know, just be ready, um, you know, and, and kind of craft it that way. And it was, it, you know, the, the very first thing I opened with was I, I wasn't a member of the National Honor Society. My son was. Yeah, my son is too. Uh, and yeah. I go, and you guys are talking about 4.3s and 4.4s. And I said, there were some C's that I got in high school that I was damn proud I got those C's. Right. Those were the, I worked my butt off for that C and I'm okay with that. And you should be okay with the accomplishments that you guys, that you all have achieved. Sure. So yeah, got some laughs. No, that's, that's good stuff, man. I, uh, I, I can imagine you up there giving that speech. I wish I was in the room. Right. Yeah. Uh, and it, here, you know what, here's the thing. Here's, here's another thing. I'll make this. You know, when I was in school, in high school, um, and, doing public speaking. We had a class. It was a ninth grade class, Mrs. Lalo's ninth grade class. And we had to do a speech and you had to stand up and you had to speak to the members of your class, 30 kids somewhere. In there. And I, I tell people this, um, I stood up and I could not say a word completely afraid of, of public speaking. Right. Isn't that, isn't that one of the worst fears? Yeah. Totally, totally. Up. Yeah. Some people and are definitely afraid speak. of it. Yeah, and couldn't speak. And so my teacher said, hey, we have two weeks left. You have two weeks. Take your time. Uh, and I, I waited until the very last day. I got up and I, I did it. I fumbled through it, but I got it done. Um, and and what, what I've learned about myself physiologically is still happens. I get very nervous, but I've gotten better at it. Um, and it, it's probably because I do go somewhere in my head. I go to the beach. Yeah. Um, I always want to try to be positive. I want to try to be funny if I can, even if it's sarcastic sometimes, sure. but that keeps me, that keeps my mind from worrying about all this stuff. And yeah. it's still there. It's, it's another check on, on my ego to keep me from being too big. Sure. And people go, Oh man, you're so good at it. My son, one time he goes, how can you just stand up and just start speaking? Son, the, the reason why, or the way I do it is because I'm just being me. I try not to think too much about it. I just get up and I'm just going to be me. I'm going to give my message and I'm going to get out of the way. Well, it's, it's safe to say, I think you have to get comfortable being uncomfortable, you know, 
Right. Yeah. And it is right. public speaking is a skill, man. I, I'm real. I'm a firm believer that the more you do it, you just force yourself to keep doing it and doing it and doing it. It does. I don't think it maybe ever for some people, you know, and for me, it never became natural, but I got more confident, not comfortable. I got more confident doing it. So yeah, I, I see what you mean, but I definitely think that, uh, you know, I think it is a skill that can be developed over time. If you're continually excited, I haven't, I haven't done public speaking in a while. I think a couple of years ago was the last time I actually was speaking in public to a large group. But the more I did it though, you know, throughout my Coast Guard career and even, you know, beginning in college, I, I did feel myself getting more confident doing it. Um, not, not comfortable again. I never got comfortable, but I don't know. Does that make sense? No, it does. Well, here's the, I mean, and the big thing is obviously when I was on city council, we had meetings, I think it was the first Monday and the, and the third Monday of the month. And then we would have our work session on the second and fourth uh, Mondays of the month. And so you were on camera. The camera light would go on. It would be bright. You were on camera. And, you know, whether you're sitting or standing didn't matter. You were on camera. Right. And so, again, that's that's one way that, that that's helped me to to engage in and be okay. I, I say be okay, be adequate. Right. Speaking. Right. Um, but then also being a coach. You know, as, as a as a football coach, uh, and and then obviously being head of school in leadership positions in education just adds on to that. Right. But I'm not one that just jumps up and hey, I'm gonna you know put puff my chest out and just start speaking and you know I hear my voice echoing. No, that's not that's not me. That's not my personality. No, no that's I, just not I, who I am. Totally. Okay, let's can we shift gears? Yeah, absolutely. So I want to shift gears and kind of start wrapping this up a little bit. I'm mindful of your time. You're three hours ahead of me. So I want to talk COVID because it's relevant. It's definitely, it's definitely relevant in your world, shaping scholars, minds, them dealing with the stress of going back. Some, some schools are going back and forth between online and in the class. Some schools, whether what state you're in or completely online, others are fully in, in class. My oldest son, we were talking about this last night. He, he's a freshman in college and he is living on campus, but going to school online. So how are you handling my, my first question? Probably the most important. I know there's mental health challenges. I know there's a lot of teachers who are really struggling, not being able to have that face-to-face interaction with their students in the classroom. How are you dealing with that as a principal helping how you leading through this, this time of COVID now that we're almost a year coming up on a year of doing this. Well, I think right now, uh, December 30th at approximately uh, 9 PM, we are, uh, we, we've grown, uh, in ways of how to deal with this Semper Gumby, be flexible, always flexible. Uh, this has been very difficult for everybody involved. Right. Um, Scholars, parents, instructors, administrators, all of us. It, it's been very difficult. Um, but here's, here's the, the positive in all of this as we look back because we're, we're hoping that that light at the end of the tunnel is positive and not a train bearing down on us. Right. What I would say is that we've learned a lot about how flexible we can be, how effective we can be in moving forward. Um, through logistics and how we've done this and how we've managed this. And, and some of the things that you talked about here 
about being in school one week and then being out the next. Well, yeah, um, that that's happened at, at our school and in our, in our school district, you know, where, you know, we started off at the very beginning of the school year at the end of August. Um, we have scholars that are there that uh, want to be on-site learners. They're designated as on-site learners. And then there are those that do not want to be there, think that the risk is too great. They are online learners. So you have a group that's on-site and a group that is online. Well, our instructors, and God bless them for what they've done, they're not only teaching to the students in the classroom. They are teaching to students that are in a computer lab in our school. They are also teaching their class to scholars who are at home. Right. So really, in effect, the teacher is teaching to three different groups in their classrooms. They've done an amazing job. That's tough, and man. A lot of adaptability and flexibility. Absolutely. And they, they have done this job and have done their commitment is just, it's, it's priceless. It's amazing. The job that they've done, but they've, they've done it with very little, uh, complaining. Okay. We, we worked on this, you know, March through May, our logistics for this thing, because I mean, we, we heard on a Thursday that Monday we were going to lock down and we were going to be out of school. Our staff did a great job to muster up everything, get everything organized uh, on Friday and speak with our scholars. And then we were ready to go on Monday and we did a good job of that. So then, you know, the attendance thing obviously was a big issue for us because once the kids went home, some of them thought, well, that's it. I don't need to do anything. So we, we fine tuned that in the summer. And we, we had a plan coming in for the fall, which has worked very well. Logistically, again, you have your online, your on-site, uh, and you have students that are in lab. So our maximum size of a class is 18 uh, in every class. So you can have 18, and you can do your social distancing with your masks on, um, you know, and, and limiting the amount of people in one space. The difference, so if you have 30, right, that difference, those 12, would be in a computer lab and they would still be doing work. They would still have access to their teacher if they needed to speak to them afterwards, but they're not physically in the classroom on certain days. We have black days and red days. So the days that they're out, like if they're out on a Monday, they're going to be in class on a Tuesday. Okay. Um, So there's alternating, but they're still there. So those scholars will still the one, you know, the families that want to be in school, they're still in school. We've had situations where yes, we've seen numbers go up, and uh, just recently, right before break, numbers started to creep up a little bit. And I said, you know what, we, you know, I made the recommendation to the superintendent, we can do this, we can go remote for the last couple of weeks of school. Right. And I think we should, because it will slow things down, it will mitigate anything that's happening. The good thing here is, Tim, that from the outset of this, of, of COVID, uh, we've had approximately, I think, three or four uh, cases total, just total out of that amount of time from March until now, we've had people that are contacts in the NFL seeing this, even with my, my team here, my home team, the Cleveland Browns, where yes, we've had contacts, you know, and, and that's where we we've stepped in and our school nurse has done a great job of stepping in and doing the contact tracing because mm-hmm. the County is just bogged down. They can't do it. So we're doing it. Okay. We're doing the contact tracing and then we make our decision based off of our numbers. I think it's just an amazing, the, the entire process and, and what we've done here, uh, when we look back on it, 
we're not going to break our arms patting our backs, but we're going to be very proud of the job that everybody did. Well, and I think a leadership takeaway from me listening to you is, you know, a lot of these processes, you know, adapting and and trying to be flexible and, and creating new processes, this didn't just happen overnight. This evolved over time, right? You guys, you know, trial and error, this works, this doesn't, we take this away, we fix this process. And that process has evolved right over a school year up to now, right? A lot of meetings. Yeah. Um, you know, even in the mornings when, when our scholars would come into the building, staff has to do their temperature check. They have to put it on a spreadsheet. Our scholars would come in. We'd have the handhelds that scan the forehead. We now have, because of a donation from one of our localities here, which is just awesome, we actually have a TV screen and uh, there's an actual apparatus up that will you walk through the doors and it's a a box around the person's head and it will give you the temperature that they are. So that's where we're at now. I mean, this thing has just, like you said, it's evolved into, you're almost like, man, this is almost like Star Trek sci-fi stuff now. It's a lot of moving parts, man, right? A lot of moving parts. Absolutely. Wow. So are you prepared to play this out for the rest of the school year? I mean, it sounds like you guys have, have, have got this kind of dialed in for the most part. You have the different, yeah, right. you're, you're ready to yeah. do this all the way till the end of the, the 2021 right. school we year. Are. We're, we're ready. We can do it. We've shown we can do it. We've done a great job of uh, just operating on a daily basis and how we've done it. We've remained strong through this process and committed uh, to keeping everyone safe. And that includes, you know, anybody that steps foot in our buildings. Yeah. Uh, you know, so yes, we are prepared. We, we know that better days are ahead. We sure. do know that. And we're, and we're hopeful uh, that that is the case, but we are prepared to go this way for the rest of the year. One of the things that came up last year was in May, we had uh, our graduation and we had to do it a different way. And of course there were people that were not happy about that. Um, and all said, you know, when it was all said and done, uh, the people were very appreciative of the fact that we actually did something. And, and what we did was we didn't have, obviously, the large group, the whole graduating class with all their family packed into a gymnasium, which is what it normally is. Right. We did it one by one. So we, we set up appointments. So we would do an appointment for 15 minutes, and then the next appointment would come in the next 15, and they could come in with, I think it was uh, four of their family members to come in, and they could take pictures, and we call their name. They'd walk across the stage and get their diploma. And people weren't happy about it, but the families afterwards, they said, you know what? If we couldn't do it the way we've done it in the past, this was the second best thing. Thank you. Right. Uh, and there were a lot of naysayers out there. And I, and I did get blasted for that. Uh, and the people, you know, and, and, and our team got blasted for it. But we did it. And we moved on and, and we will continue to do so, you know, and, and be positive about it. One, I think one of the number one rules of leadership, man, never going to please everybody, right? Can't do it. It's impossible. No. No, no, you're, you're absolutely right. I think the positives from it were, and they, what they would say is, hey, that was our time. You know, in, in the, the way we've done it in the past, you know, you're just reading off the list, and they're just coming across the stage one by one by one by one. Well, in this case, it was, it was you know, they could actually sit, get pictures taken, parents could go up, get their pictures taken. They heard their name called. It wasn't just a rush. It was, that's my, that was our time. Mm-hmm. And, and they were appreciative of that. So, you know, like you said, though, you can't please 100% of the people 100% of the time. 
Do you have advice, you know, if put your educator hat on, advice for maybe students, parents who are dealing with a, a child who's really, who is completely immersed online, who are struggling with this completely online and maybe they don't have a choice. They have to be online. Do you have, is there, from an educator standpoint, is there, do you have any words of wisdom for, for families that are dealing with that and that stress? Of you know, because I've heard of, I've I've heard of a lot of stories of, of of grades starting to to fall, from from kids who were just fully immersed online. It's just they're not taking to it for whatever reason. I'm sure there's a hundred different reasons why. But what are your thoughts on that? What do you got? There's a lot yeah. to unpack there, but I'll be short and sweet. I would say to those scholars and their families that if you are an online learner, be committed to what you're doing. Um, do not get on class in your bedroom uh, <laughs> That's in a good point. Yeah. <laughs> because we've seen that see right like you said it's trial and error it's things that these experiences uh, have a common space so either your living room dining room uh, you know, at the very least a uh, place where there's a desk at get out of bed make sure you're you're on um, uh, you're, say, you're saying a dead you're saying a dedicated space not like where you're laying in bed right yeah absolutely it's your new classroom right right yeah and be, and you know, here, here's the thing. We, we understand, you know, as educators, because we're going through it right now ourselves, our educators would much rather have everyone in school. Uh, it, it's, it's just better. Uh, there's a lot of hidden curriculum in there uh, when they're in school. That hidden curriculum is the social aspect of it in a lot of cases. And so we know how difficult it is because we're living it too. And so just be committed that if your class starts at 7.30, you need to be there at 7.30 um, and go about your day for those classes that you have, making sure you're, you're there for those classes and you're doing the work and you're putting in the hours. Don't, um, you know, do it for five minutes and then you're off. Make sure you're putting in the time to get it done. It's going to help in the long run because we know, like you stated, Tim, that there uh, obviously are disadvantages to this. Uh, through attendance and then also through grades. And so we are going to have to make that up. Once we get out of this, somehow we've got to get get our ninth grade or our let's say our 12th grade students, they may be at an 11th grade level, depending on what the curriculum is and what content they're in. We've right. got to get them back to where they need to be, okay? Uh, and I, 12th graders are leaving, so that's not a good example, but 11th graders sure. or 10th grade sure. or 9th and there, so forth and so on. So we've got to make that up. We will. Um, and we will start looking at that. Like I'm always one to kind of take the initiative to start looking forward. Obviously we have a plan, like you said, right now, we're going to work our plan. We're going to get better at our plan, but then we're also looking at, okay, after we come out of this and we emerge, you know, stronger, we've got to get our kids back where they need to be academically. And the state can't just flick on the light and say, okay, everything's fine. Now go back. No, we, we are going to have to, you know, remediate. There has to be remediation. Our instructors know that. They they're already, they already know who our identified scholars are that are going to need it. And so we will address it when we get to that point. Um, but but the, the, the main message to our, our scholars at home is to stay committed and know that we are here to help. Uh, a lot of times they're isolated, so I always tell them to either call or email. Uh, and, and there are a good contingency of them that will every day which is good. Sure. Uh, and we want that. We want that to continue. And we do have, you know, a, a therapeutic behavior specialist 
that that's able to actually help us academically and on the social emotional part that will make those phone calls as well, as well as our guidance counselor who has done an awesome job as well, taking that on. I mean, they have been amazing. We, we have weekly meetings on uh, social, emotional, uh, and mental, mental health uh, at our school. But it's not just for that part. It's also for the academic part because it all ties in. That, that seems very beneficial just from an outsider. That seems like that would be very beneficial. Right. Absolutely. It is. I wonder how many other school districts are doing that. That's a good, that's a good question. It seems that's like, uh, you know, going back to my Coast Guard days, it seems like one of those best practices that might. Right. right? And, and it is. And again, I mean, this is something where after this is all said and done, this is something that we need to retain and keep, uh, you know, online. And it will be because we actually, when we brought on our TBS, this was before uh, the pandemic hit. So it's something that will remain, but it, it is, it's very important, especially nowadays. It just, it, it really is in uh, having our conversation. And then with the fact that you, you have uh, teenagers who have been uh, in some cases isolated in their homes, haven't left or have very rarely left their homes, don't have a lot of social uh, activities going on. Uh, you know, in their lives. Now, I will say that what we've tried to do and my my goal and our goal as a school district and especially at my high school, at our high school, is that this year we were going to make sure that our activities, if we could operate safely, we were going to do everything like it was a normal year. Right. So all of our athletics have been in place. All of our clubs have been in place. We had a play that we did uh, and, and the director of the play, he, he just did a great job. He did it. Through, it was almost like through a Zoom platform, so it was online. Wow, that's got to uh, be tough. Yeah, you could sit in the comfort of your living room and watch this play. That's awesome. And he was able to do this, and and so we're going to do the same thing for our, our spring musical. It'll probably be the same way. Hopefully, we're hoping that I'm, I'm going to strongly encourage that. Sure. <laughs> well, man, I, I hope for you and and your colleagues and and for the students. You know, not just in the state of Ohio, but just all across. You know. Everywhere, man. Not even just in the United States. This is going on all over the planet. So, I hope for for the young minds. I hope they can someday get back to, to getting that social social interaction because, you know, it's kind of what I might obviously talk to you last night. It's because it's not just the academics, right? It's just all. It's also just that social networking. It's that dealing with personal problems in in school and having to overcome those challenges and and get through it and work through it. There's a whole just life skills, not just the academic stuff, right? Right. And, and the whole thing is that those resources are there, right? right? And so what we've attempted, and, and like I said, I mean, we have the county programs here in our county have done a great job uh, and done a, just an amazing job partnership-wise of engaging us, coming in and working in our schools with our families. And they will go to homes if they are, you know, invited by parents. They will go to homes. Um, and, and, and do it as well and engage uh, so that our, our families, our scholars uh, have that, uh, that support that they need. It is important for us to get back, um, but we will get back in due time and we'll get back safely. When we do get back, um, you know, obviously this is not something where, you know, this pre-COVID, post-COVID thing, there are going to be some things that, that we learned here that we're going to implement. Uh, it may not be on the level we have them now. Um, but there are things that we can do to make sure that everyone is safe. And that mental health part is it, it's very important. It just, it really is. And that was the reason why I wanted those social 
those activities, the athletics and the social groups and things right. to continue on, even if it was through Zoom meetings or Google Meets, you know, to have those, we, we really should. And, and if we could do it safely, and that's what I, that's what I stated, and we all embraced as a staff that we would do it. If we could do it safely, we were going to do it. Two things I admire, admire about your, your leadership traits, your character traits, optimistic, yet a realist. And I think you have to be able to sometimes blend those two, right? There's, there's time to be optimistic, but you also have to be, be very real about the challenges. And hopefully you can turn those challenges into opportunities, right? I think you, you're, ty- you're type of knowing you, you're the type of person that will get those challenges, the challenges associated with COVID and look for opportunities anywhere you can, right? To, to build, str- turn weaknesses into strengths. Does that make sense? Did it, I say that right? Yeah, absolutely. It's very important. Um, and growing up uh, in a very liberal household, um, I, my, one of my favorite presidents, and I actually visited his library, um, was Ronald Reagan. Mm. And I, I, you know, my grandparents obviously would say something different about him. Sure. But as a kid growing up and hearing his message, his message was optimistic. It was very optimistic, um, but it was strong. It was uh, very direct. It made you feel good about who you were. And so as a leader and, and watching how, and obviously depending on what your political leaning is, but I'm an independent, um, I know how I felt about that. And so, yeah, I am. I'm very optimistic, but I'm also a realist too. Right. I understand that there are, um, that things are real. You have to, in order to, um, to act on things, you need to actually diagnose, see what the issues are, understand, understand the issue. issue. Correct. Right. Understand the barriers and then plot that course and evaluate, reevaluate as you go along, which like you said, this thing has evolved just like, you know, it has our operations, our logistics for running our school has evolved from March until here in December. It has evolved. Um, but it is important to know, you know, where you're playing, what field you're playing on, who you're playing, right? As a coach, you know, do they, what do they run? <laughs> you know, offense, what, what do they run? Are they, are they running a spread? Are they, are they running a triple option? Right. How do you prepare for it? What do you do? And it's the same way in education and, and, and uh, logistics and, and how you do operations. That was the one good thing about being an ops petty officer on, on a cutter. Right. You know, I, I had to do all the logistics for that stuff. Operations, I had operations, load. petty officer. Yeah. 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 I had to load all of the, the charts in there. I had to make sure all the charts were matched up paper wise, make sure that everything was good to go into track lines and, and the logistical part of fueling court calls and, and all of that. So that all helped me uh, become the person I am today, the leader I am. And I embrace leadership. I do. I embrace it. There are days, like I said, that, and I tell people this, and I said it to my scholars, there are lonely days. There are, there are armchair quarterbacks out there. That's all they do. They come out of the, they come out of the woodworks, right? Oh yeah. They're noise though. (laughs) To me, they're noise. Yeah. All right. There's a goal here. All right. And the goal is your success, right? It's your success. It's to make sure that we give you what you need to be successful or to get out when you, when you graduate to go out into the real world and be successful and be productive. And I think one of the things that uh, we talked about last night, the core values, 
and ours is pride. You know, we have pride being productive, respectful, involved, determined, and empathetic. And so we live by those. And it, <laughs> you know me, right? Yep. So does that sound like a personification of who I am? Yes. Yeah, it is. You know, it definitely is. That's stuff that I live by. So that was, you know, when I was looking at interviewing for this job and, and, uh, you know, came out and interviewed for it. When I saw that, I'm like, that's me. That's, you know, the honor, respect, devotion to duty is up there, you know, and that's, that's at the top. But then that, that pride part is, is there too. It's, it, I live that. That's not, that's not fake. That's not phoniness there. Yeah. It's that's more, it's more than just a, a buzzword. It's, it's a value. It's, it's a personal value right. and, and a shared value with, within your high school. And right now that's, that's good stuff, man. I, uh, I really, I, I appreciate the COVID talk. I think it was necessary. I, I think it's super necessary in this time. It is very, we know that is just, that, that is our reality right now. Right. And it is, and it's going to be. And, and you're right when you ask the question, are you prepared going forward? And we are. Yeah. We are. You know, that first week back, we're going to go, we're going to go remote. Um, that'll give us a little more time to get our, our stuff together so that our scholars who return, and we'll, we actually will have more coming back the second semester than we did the first, but it'll give us a chance logistically to make sure we have everything together, and then they'll come back that following week, and we'll roll. We're going to go. And that's, that's just reality, but as we continue to do these things, stuff's going to start coming back online, um, you know, as far as services, and not just services, but like I said, those social activities, and, and how we do things, how, how much are we going to open up our building right now? We're still, uh, you know, it's, it's pretty much our staff and our scholars and then our support services. And that's it. I mean, our parents can come in and watch athletics uh, in the gymnasium, but you don't, you, obviously you only have a certain amount that can be there right now. Right. So we, we fully understand uh, where we're at and what we're living through. And, and I know it's difficult for people, but we're going to get there. We're going to get there together. We're going to make it and we're going to look back on this and, and we're going to say, you know what, that was, that was difficult, but that was a time that we really had to get together and we see it both ways. We see it positive and negative on how people react to this stuff. Right. And I was, I was lucky, just like you're lucky. You know, we, our life, our livelihood in a lot of cases, we had high stress situations and like you said, you didn't know what was going to happen from day to day. Right. So that prepared me for what's going on now mentally. It helped me uh, in who I am and how to react to these things, which are difficult. It, it's not easy for anybody. Well, and I think you just, you hit it just a minute ago. You have to understand where you're at to start right. planning and where you want to go, right? It's just like fixing your position out on a boat. You can't, can't go to a destination unless you know where you're starting from. So uh, it sounds like you have done a great job and, and I'm sure the Coast Guard definitely played a role in helping you prepare or being in the, in the mindset, right? It's a mindset, right? Of always seeking to understand where you're at as a leader, where you're at as, as an organization so you can plan the way forward, right? Correct. Correct. Absolutely. All right. Perfectly so, yeah, no. So I, I am, it's, it's 10 o'clock your time. I have one last question. 
Do you, well, not a question. Oh, yeah, it is a question. Do you have a sea story? Do you have a famous Coast Guard sea story? Sea story. Maybe it has a leaders, yeah. maybe it has a leadership nexus. It doesn't have to. It but. does. It does. It does. And I'm I'm glad you I'm glad you asked that question. Let's end it with and this. So, Station Ashtabula. Uh, get a call about a vessel that hit a break wall, and the vessel, according to the uh, the, the person who was the, the owner of the boat, uh, was damaged beyond repair and at at sunk. And he was giving us, kind of letting us know where he was at, which was, he had stated was Geneva State Park. So we got our, our crew together. Uh, we're ready to go. I'm the coxswain. I'm also the leading boarding officer on, on the, uh, the star case. We start heading for Geneva State Park, look at the light, um, and we're in contact with the person on the boat. I guess they had called in and maybe it was a cell phone. Maybe it was those flip phones that you had back in the day. Right. Right. Um, and we're getting closer to this thing and I'm like, there's nobody out here. And so then I asked for the, I asked the, the person that had called it in to tell us exactly where they were. They were disoriented. Obviously I mean, you hit a break wall, uh, you're disoriented. And so then they came back and said, Hey, uh, the characteristics on this light is alternating white and red. And I said, that's not Geneva State Park. That's Conneaut. Which was quite Turn a distance away. Quite a distance away. Yeah. yeah. Turn around and let's, let's put it down, put the hammer down, and let's go. So we got, we got out there. Um, and, you know, obviously they, they were bloody. Um, all three of them were bloodied. And, and we had already called for the paramedics and, and families were there. When we got them on board and we got them, got them on, on shore safely and to the paramedics and to their family. I think the message in this, again, we talked about knowing where you are. Right. Um, you know, when, when stuff hits the fan, people get disoriented. They need help. And so, again, know, knowing where you are, doing your homework, you know, hey, that's, tell me again, where you, what are your surroundings? Where are you? And, and that helped us uh, in executing that mission. Proud of, proud of the, the group that went out that night. Um, you know, so, but that, that was my story. That was the one case that will always, when I'm probably leaving the planet, <laughs> that's one that will probably flash before my eyes. I'll see that one. Along with our, our, football, our football games on, on Fridays, uh, <laughs> Yes. And and those championships at uh, at Buffalo there. The hollow yeah, grounds definitely. of Buffalo, New York. Yes. I Absolutely. And a good time as, as my diminishing skills the last time I played when I was playing center. Yep. That was a, that but, was uh, us trying to relive the uh, the glory teenage teenage years days in our twenties and thirties. That's yeah. it. That that's it. And, and just to, like I said, I mean, people ask me about my experience in the Coast Guard and that one, that unit, um that community has a special place in my, my heart because of the experiences I had with the people there, um, with the command there, yourself, um, you know, Dennis Smith, right. Nice. Uh, you know, and some of the others that, that were there and I can name, I can name them. I can name them. Um, had a good cast of characters, good cast of characters. Yes, it was. Yes. But again, I mean, I just, I had such a good time there. And I mean, when you're going from, uh, 
you know, I had just made E4 when I got there. So I was really, to me, I was really an E3, but got there as an E4 and I left there uh, almost making E6, uh, you know, and so again, spent a lot of time there and, you know, just getting all those quals finally. I didn't think I'd ever get fully qualified there and move on and do some other things and have that responsibility that you and the XPO placed on me. Uh, you know, again, just, and that's what I try to do, Tim, is, I mean, there are people that are in education and, and teachers will kind of scoff at administration because they're two different things. And right. It's the dark side sometimes, right? And and so what I decided to do, and again, I go back to my principal, um, Brittany Sanford, who's a principal at Nexus Academy of Cleveland, when I decided to come or go into administration, uh, she did an awesome job um, getting me involved in the day-to-day and what the job was about and those hard decisions that were made. Um, you know, so I got to see firsthand and very actively involved. It wasn't just, I'm going to mentor you and talk to you and sit down and you're going to study this stuff. No, it was, you know, these are things that happen. These are decisions you need to think about how you're going to handle them as a person. And so I do the same thing. You know, I've had one that, you know, he's, he's doing the same thing that I did. And I've brought him in on a couple of things where the book stuff is the book stuff. Right. Um, but sitting down and listening to conversations with the scholar, opening up the handbook, talking to parents, how would you handle that? What would you do? Would you have done something differently? You used to do that as the OINC at Station Ashtabula. So it all kind of ties together. Yeah, I tried. It, I tried. Yeah. No, that's uh, good stuff. I I am going to close it here, man. I I am yeah. super grateful for your time. And I, I have a lot to reflect on. You know, I always say leadosophy is about deepening my understanding of leadership. And I think you have given me a lot to chew on, to ruminate on, as I like to say. Uh, a lot of good, a lot of good information. Thanks for, for sharing some of your personal stories too. I know, you know, some people aren't really comfortable about doing that, but I, I think you definitely opened up and showed me how that made you who you are. I mean, as, as a person, as a leader, as a follower, you know, you can't talk about any of that stuff without talking about some of the, the personal stuff growing up and, and evolving in, into who you are today. So I, I'm, I'm grateful for that, for, for you doing that and taking the time to do that. Well, I appreciate uh, the opportunity to speak to you. I appreciate you inviting me to speak about leadership. Very important in my life. Um, that was one thing my mom always brought up to me growing up that, you know, that I was going to lead in some capacity. I was going to be a leader and, and I heard it a lot. And like I said, a lot of my friends will tell you, yeah, he was <laughs> sometimes obnoxiously that guy, but I, but I was, and, and I appreciate the opportunity to speak with you this evening. Um, I appreciate our time. Again, this is sort of a reunion for us, a little bit, but I yes. do appreciate our time uh, that we serve. It was a pleasure and an honor serving with you. Uh, and then also following as, as your career kind of went on, I was still watching, still getting, keeping tabs on, on how you were doing. And so this has been great. And it's been definitely time well spent. We'll definitely have to do it again. We will have to do it again. I will, I will end it there. I, I, it was an honor. Obviously everything you said, it was an honor serving with you. Um, I'll end it with this. Uh, leadosophy is about using the tools of philosophical thought to deepen your understanding of leadership. So Markel, you can take that to your students if you want a little bit of leadosophy. 
and take that oh, and maybe, yeah. maybe spread it through the school a little bit. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, I will. Absolutely. It, it's, it's like I said, it, it's very important. It and it's something that, uh, you know, it can be lonely at times, but it, you know, if you want it, go get it, That's it. go get it. And, and just know that, you know what? Um, I'm a worker bee, man. Nothing that I, that I've done. And, and it's not me, but it's, it's really we, nothing that we've done and me being the carrier, sometimes the ball carrier in this, um, has come easy for me. Everything I've done has been, I've had to work for. And so that makes it that much sweeter. And, and I don't take things for granted. I don't feel entitled. And, and I'm glad because of the people that I had in my life, from my family to my teachers, to those individuals, those mentors I had, yourself included, when I was in the Coast Guard. Uh, it, it's all, that's who I am. All of those experiences, all of those people, they're all in me. They're, they're, you would see it. They're all part of who I am. Sure. It's part of the fabric, man. It's part of your makeup. You can't ever get rid of it. Nor would you want That's to. Right. You Nor know would it. you want to. Yeah. It's no. all part of it. Okay, my friend. I'm going to end it there. Again, I, I thank you and let's do this again sometime. Absolutely. Thanks for watching and listening to another episode of Leadosophy. If you liked what you heard today, hit that subscribe button and check out leadosophy.com and learn more about Tim's ideas on philosophy and leadership. We'll see you next time.